good morning again. It is so good to be with you, Bel Air Church. Wow, uh, I love being here. I love being a part of this community. I love the privilege and the honor to be able to preach God's word. So thank you uh, for that privilege. Um, something a little bit about me, though, that you might not know. I wasn't raised a Presbyterian. I know. I had to confess it. I didn't know if you guys would like still accept me, um, but I had to just get it out there. It was just been, you know, building up inside. I'm like, I just got to say it. I just got to. Well, in the traditions that I was raised in, unfortunately, and I'm not proud of this, but um, many of them would actually make fun of Presbyterians. Could you imagine? And they would say things, and they thought they were so funny, okay? They thought, oh my gosh, this is so good. You know those Presbyterians, and you've heard this. You know, they're the frozen chosen. They love it. Oh, they laugh. Oh. So Christian of us, wasn't it? You know? Man, man. I got the chosen part, okay? I understand that. But the frozen, like really? What was that about? I mean, maybe it's about our committees, okay? Maybe it's about our meetings. Maybe it's about the fact that, you know, we just don't get things done. We don't just make a quick snap decision and go with it. We're thoughtful. We take time. In fact, I never thought I would do this in my life but we have this thing called the Book of Order. Have you heard of this? Some are like, yes, the Book of Order. It, it's it's kind of like my high school. Um, I went to a, a, a high school. It was a, it was a Christian high school. And the founders were like, what should we call it? You know, I don't know. It's a, it's a Christian high school. What should, we, what should we call it? That's it. Let's call it Christian High School. Brilliant. I mean, it's a bit on the nose, but I, I think it'll do. And so the founders of the Presbyterian Church were like, what should we call it? The Book of Order. Oh, I get it. Okay. So it's about order in the church. Yeah. So, you know, what I thought was, um, since Drew's away on family vacation, I just thought I would take the next 25 minutes, if you don't mind, we'd just jump, in, jump into this thing here. Um, no, but... Seriously, I do want to read something from this because I am a Presbyterian, a Presbyterian minister. And when I took my ordination vows, I um, had to read this book in order to pass a test. I had to read it. I had to reread it and reread it again. It took me a while to pass that test. But this, man, this is sweet. Are you ready? compassion. God sends the church in the power of the Holy Spirit to exercise compassion in the world, to feeding the hungry, comforting the grieving, caring for the sick, visiting the prisoners, freeing the captives, sheltering the homeless, befriending the lonely. The church is called to minister to the immediate needs and hurts of people. The church is also called to engage those structures and systems which create or foster brokenness and distortion. Christians respond to these calls through acts of advocacy 
and compassion. God sends the church in the power of the Holy Spirit to share with Christ in establishing God's just, peaceable, and loving rule in the world. Justice is the order God sets in human life for fair and honest dealing and for giving rights to those who have no power to claim rights for themselves. There is no peace without justice. Wherever there is brokenness, violence, and injustice, the people of God are called to peacemaking. The ministries of reconciliation, justice, and peace are initiated and nurtured in the church's worship of God. That's in here. The book of order, this is, these are the riverbanks of our church. Not to control us, not to tell us what we should do or what we have to do, but to keep us in the flow of what God wants to do in and through us as a church. When I read this, I was like, yes, I want to be a a Presbyterian. I love this. But just because something is written down on paper, it doesn't mean it's who we are. It's a signpost, it's it's a goal, it's it's a mile marker of who we want to become. And so that's where we look to. And so we are a people in becoming like Christ. With that, will you pray with me? Lord God, we know your heart. Mm. You make it plain, you make it clear. To do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly. These are the people that we want to become. But we need your Holy Spirit to do a work in us, to shape us, to mold us, to give us new eyes, to give us new ears, and to give us a new heart so that we can be your ministers of justice, we can be your agents of reconciliation in the world. For your glory, Jesus, we pray these things. Amen. If you would, open up your Bibles. If you didn't bring your Bibles, uh, there's one in the pew in front of you or underneath. And if you're in the 901, there's Bibles all throughout the 901 service. But uh, grab it. You can go on to your, Drew says this all the time, so I'm going to say it. But you can go on to your smartphone and go to YouVersion. We're going to Proverbs chapter 31. It's the last chapter in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 31, verse 8. And I'm going to be reading through verse 9. Speak out for those who cannot speak for the rights of all the destitute. Speak out, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. This is the word of the Lord. Speak out, the writer says. Speak up, advocate, you must defend This is not a suggestion. 
In the, in the Hebrew, this, this word for speak out is not, uh, you know, you might want to consider. It's a command. It's an imperative. It's a you must. The writer of this proverb is saying, you must speak out. You must judge righteously. You must defend those who cannot speak. This is a figure of speech. Those who cannot speak, he's not necessarily literally saying those who are mute, but those who have been muted. The poor, the forgotten, the oppressed, the down and out. Says if your voice is heard by others, if you have the the power to make change, then wisdom demands that we speak up, that we speak out, and that we champion the rights of the defenseless. Open your mouth, Solomon says. Judge righteously. Don't forget equal rights and advocate for equal justice. You must fight for the rights of the poor and needy. It's imperative. It's imperative that we advocate for those who are ignored and oppressed. These are the ones left destitute by the, the cruelties and inequalities of life. Solomon, a king, mandates this kind of care and concern. So who is Solomon talking about? Listen to scripture describe those who are poor, forgotten, oppressed, and down and out. In the Old Testament, Moses, after receiving the Ten Commandments, writes down some laws concerning just community living. He says, do not take advantage of the widows and the fatherless. The psalmist also writes a song saying, give justice to the weak and the orphan. Maintain the right of the lowly and destitute. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. I love it. We just sang songs just like that beforehand. You may very well be familiar with Isaiah 58, but I want you to hear it in a different way. God says, this is the kind of day of fasting I'm after. To break the chains of injustice. To get rid of exploitation in the workplace. Free the oppressed. Cancel debts. What I'm interested in seeing you do is sharing your food with the hungry, inviting the homeless poor into your homes, putting clothes on the shivering, poorly clothed people, and being available to your own families. The New Testament writers, they were mentored under this wisdom. We see the same charge given to the early church. In James, it says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to care for the orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. But James wasn't just about wisdom. It wasn't just conviction written down on paper. It was a conviction that they lived out. Turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 6. Matthew, Mark, Luke, 
John Acts chapter 6. And as you turn there, I'm going to give you a little bit of background information about what's going on in the early church. In Acts 4, 32 through 35, it says, Now the whole group of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one claimed private ownership of any possessions, but everything they owned was held in common. With great power, the apostles gave their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as owned lands or houses sold them and bought and brought the proceeds of what was sold. They laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. The church was filled with Greek and Hebrews. This is a very different culture coming together and they're trying to work it out. But it says that they were all of one heart and mind and that they were trying, they were trying to care for one another by selling their possessions, by making sure that no one was with need. That's the kind of community they were striving for. But this new community was less than perfect. We find this out in Acts chapter 6. We're going to be reading from verses 1 through 5. Now during those days when the disciples were increasing in number, the Hellenists complained against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. And the twelve called together the whole community of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should neglect the word of God in order to wait on tables. Therefore, friends, select among yourselves seven men of good standing, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may appoint to this task, while we, for our part, will devote ourselves to prayer and to serving the word. What they said pleased the whole community. What is going on? I mean, just two chapters ago, we learned that they were one heart and mind, right? They were sharing everything. How could this happen? How could they allow the widows to be overlooked? It says that the community was growing, right? Isn't that good? Yeah. But sometimes things can grow and the most vulnerable are the ones who pay for it. People having equal rights doesn't mean people receive equal justice. Melinda Gates, just uh, heard Melinda Gates speak at uh, GLS, the Global Leadership Summit that we had here on campus, and she said something that I just, it just resonated with me deeply. It says, all lives have equal value, yet we need to treat them as equal. In the early church, Hebrew widows and Greek widows both had equal rights to the daily distribution of food. But Greek widows weren't being treated as equal. Whether intentional or unintentional, this early church community was experiencing injustice. If injustice was present in this new community... Just shortly after the resurrection of Christ, in the early stages of the formation of the church, then why would it surprise us to learn that injustice exists today? Just this suggestion often offends people. But why? I mean, the apostles were not offended. They weren't offended by the complaint of the injustice. 
They didn't deny the reality of these women's suffering. The disciples didn't tell the women in their community, hey, could you just stop complaining? No, they spoke out. They defended the rights of the poor and needy. And righteous judgment prevailed. So what did it take for the apostles to do this? And that's where I want to go this morning. I believe that it takes conviction. It takes a certain sense of conviction. Yes, we read in the book of order, a conviction of what the church is to be about. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God. The Father is this, to care for orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. This is a conviction that the early church held to be true. But this conviction is not just a knowledge. It's not just a scripture memorization. It's not just a reference in the book of order. Conviction is a heart that aches. Conviction are ear, ears that burn, eyes that weep. A conviction like this is something that is only birthed in prayer. Turn with me, if you would, to the Old Testament, 1 Kings chapter 3, verses 5. And we're going to look at uh, the book of 1 Kings. It's on page 265 in my Bible, so it's somewhere around there for you. Page 265. 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 5. This is speaking of King Solomon. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. And God said, ask what I should give you. Wow. <laughs> that's, a, that's an amazing encounter. God shows up and says, why don't you ask me what I should give you? Really? I can ask you anything I want. Anything? Really, God? I can, anything. Solomon is like, okay, I got one shot here. What is he going to ask for? Look at verse 9. Solomon says, give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, able to discern between good and evil. For who can govern this, your great people? I want to continue reading verse 10. It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. God said to him, because you have asked this and have not asked for your, yourself long life or riches or for the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, I now do according to your word. Indeed, I give you a wise and discerning mind. No one like you has been before and no one like you shall rise after you. Perhaps the wisest thing that Solomon ever did in his reign as king was that he prayed for God's wisdom. And God gave it to him. <laughs> First Kings 4 Verse 29, God gave Solomon the very, very great wisdom, discernment, and breadth of understanding as vast as the sand on the seashore. 1 Kings 10.24 says, The whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put in his mind. 
This isn't Solomon's idea. This isn't something that Solomon came up with. This is God's wisdom. And we live in complicated times. Complicated times. Black and blue and all lives matter. There is racism in every camp. Unequal pay for equal work. Workforce discrimination. There is sexism in every industry. Negative media images. Physical and financial abuse. There is ageism at every corner. Fear. Terror. Anti-everyone and everything. There is extremism on every channel. And with all the isms and the schisms that they create, these times demand for Christians to pray for God's wisdom and God's conviction. We can have all the conviction in the world, but if you don't have love, you know this. We're just a clanging cymbal, the sound of a squeaky creaky gate. Godly conviction must always be coupled with Christian care. Proverbs 31, speak out for those who cannot speak, for the rights of all the destitute. Well, how does one hear the concerns of those who cannot speak? How does one hear the cries of a voice that has been tuned out or turned off? In order to hear, you have to care enough to listen. Ever had a, a conversation? You know this kind of conversation where you, you share your concerns with somebody and they never ask you any questions. You've had this conversation before? You're asked, you know, how are you doing? And you share some, you know, something about how hard your day was. And as soon as you're finished, they respond, oh, I totally get it. There was this time where I was, just last week, I, and when I did was, I, and who wouldn't believe what happened to me today? Ever had one of those conversations before? My wife, Rebecca, says that she has these kinds of conversations all the time. Unfortunately, they're with me. Apparently, this is what I sound like driving home from work when we're carpooling together. Maybe that's why we drove separately today. <laughs> but it got me thinking. Are Christians known as people who listen in order to respond? Or people who listen in order to understand? But you might argue, who am I to engage the down and out? We would have nothing in common how would I relate? I wouldn't even know where to begin. Can you hear it? The fear of what we don't know. The fear of feeling and sounding foolish. The fear of what we might learn about ourselves. Fear keeps us away, disengaged. Fear keeps us from hearing the muted. One of the most courageous people I know is my niece, Jillian Morgan. She's an 18-year-old woman. I'm just, I love her. You can tell. High school ASB president, freshman at UCLA. I know, I'm sorry, USC fans. But you want to know what I'm most proud of? 
her conviction for the Lord, her care for the marginalized, and her courage to engage. She wrote a book recently. It's called Forgotten Voices. Yeah, you can buy it on Amazon. I know it's a shameless plug, but she did. Forgotten Voices from an 18-year-old filled with stories of San Diego's homeless community. She writes about lessons she learned about their needs, lessons that she learned about herself. In her book, we learn about a man named Clyde. Clyde is a 72-year-old Marine veteran who is homeless. She writes, I chose to approach him because I was scared. What? Did you think about that for a second? I chose to engage because I was scared. I thought that was a typo when I first, I'm like, Jillian, I think you meant, you know, you, you chose to engage, but you were scared. No, I chose to engage because I was scared. See, Jillian knows fear is the only thing that's holding her back from engaging the poor. And Jillian writes, I was scared of sounding pretentious. I was scared of offending them with my ignorance of their situations. And I was scared that they were going to see past my facade of fading confidence and know that I had no idea what I was doing. Anyone else ever feel this way? I know I do. Courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is moving forward in the face of fear. Courage, as we understand it at Bel Air, is following Jesus no matter how vulnerable that makes you. And Jillian was feeling very vulnerable in this moment. This kind of courage requires a commitment. Whoa, easy there, pastor. Hold on. Easy. I was tracking with you. You know, you had, you know, the conviction. You know, you had the care. You had the courage. I can even appreciate the alliteration, but man, whoa, easy. Commitment, really? Hmm. I'm overcommitted as it is. But in order to care, in order to notice, in order to pay attention and to consider, it requires our commitment. See, this uh, last number of months, this summer, we've been in a series called Summer Cinema. I gotta say this right. It's God's wisdom through Solomon and the silver screen. And we've been looking to movies in our culture that speak of God's wisdom. And this morning, I want to look at a story in our church, a God story that speaks to the wisdom of God. This is a story of conviction, of care, of courage, and commitment. This is a story about a member of our church. Her name is Sierra. Take a look. seven and a half years old and was in foster care until the age of 11. I was in foster care for a short amount of time, four years, but I was in about five or six different homes. 
going from home to home, it it made me feel like I wasn't loved and I wasn't liked. The first time I spoke to God was when I was in foster care. I saw something on TV. I think it was something about families or some some random commercial. I was by myself. Something just came over me. It was just the deepest sadness I had ever felt. And I remember just crying out to God and I just was asking him, you know, why did you take me away from my family? Is this what happens to bad boys and girls? I got adopted at 11 years old. My adoptive mom uh, kicked me out when I turned 18. I still never understood why she didn't love me or want me as much as she wanted my brothers and sisters. I did go through a, a really bad downfall, just any way I could think of to end my life. When I found out I was pregnant with my ex, um, I didn't believe it at the time. I actually took about three or four pregnancy tests just because I didn't believe it. God still has me here for a reason, no matter what bad decisions I make. I remember my wallet got stolen and it was right there. I was at the bus stop and I just literally broke down. What else do I have to go through? I wanna be here, I want a better life for myself and my child. That was my breaking point. I was at that bus stop and just broke down. Shortly after that was when I heard from Harvest Home. As I was walking up to the house, it was so beautiful, like a big beach house. Being accepted into Harvest Home answered my prayers, the first home for myself and my son. I met my mentors. I met Gretchen um, when I was about to go to family camp. The pastor of Outreach asked me, would you be willing and prayerfully think about serving as one of the co-lead mentors for Sierra and Caden. Caden was six months old when we started, and so I've been there, he's four and a half now, so it's it's been four years, and I've watched him grow up. I didn't have a son, I had two daughters. Imagine LA is really about truly interacting with those who are less fortunate. Involving her with our family has been um, just kind of life-changing for her, but also for all of us as well. She was so likable that the people of Imagine LA uh, always enjoyed having her around. So when they gave her the opportunity to work at the, at the organization, it was very gratifying for all of us, and she's done a great job there. Sierra is a, a wonderful spokesperson for someone who has been homeless. She is working with Imagine LA with students who come out of foster care at 18. I'm just so grateful how God has had his hand on her from the very beginning. She became part of our lives and she will always be uh, a part of our lives. She is family. God is making me be that advocate in a sense, speak up for those kids and, and letting them know that, you know what, this is not the end, this is not it. As far as me finding answers um, to why God did what he did, I think I'm, I'm, I'm living those answers right now be that mom for Caden that I never had. I'm Sierra, and this is just the beginning of my story.
Gretchen and David are not the only ones. There's so many of you in this community that are committed to this kind of compassion. Did you hear it? Did you hear the commitment? Sierra is family. She is. She's a member of this church family. But she is family to those who are investing in her, who have mentored her. And did you hear Sierra? She said she's mentoring the next generation. She was mentored and therefore she's mentoring. I love that picture. That is a story of what God is doing in and through this church. Many of you are committed to see the oppressed, to hear their cries. Your heart aches for equal justice. As a church, we have the conviction that in today's world, women and children remain the most vulnerable to injustice. As a church, we must model compassion that seeks to listen in order to better understand. As a church, we must pray for courage. We can't allow fear to paralyze us. We have to pray for courage to be present and to confess when we stumble and fumble as we grow. Church, our city needs our commitment to speak up for those who cannot speak for the rights of all who are destitute. Let's pray. Lord, this is something that we cannot do on our own and you don't ask us to. You give us your Holy Spirit who empowers us, who equips us, who instills in us the, the courage to engage the people whom you have eyes for, the people whom you hear, the ones whom your heart breaks for, Lord. Give us your eyes and your ears and your heart. Pray these things for your glory, Jesus. Amen.